We could open those doors now, please. And um, if you would turn in your Bibles to Mark's Gospel, chapter 12, we're going to pick up where we left off last week. Boy, I'm excited for those guys. It's going to be so cool. Did you notice Amos got a haircut? That's our oldest grandson. And um, it's amazing, you know, Tracy and I, we, you know, we're old people, so we reflect upon the past quite a bit. And we were thinking of how time flies. It goes by so fast. We remember when he was born, you know, and, and now he's all grown up. Father, we do pray that you would teach us as we continue in your word, Lord. Father, we pray that as we look at these things that were written so long ago and even lived and spoken so long ago, and yet they're pertinent, they're, they're applicable for our lives today as believers. We pray, Father, that we would learn as we look at how you responded, Jesus, to your critics, to those who tried to entrap you in your words We pray, Father, that we'd learn from that. We pray, Father, as we see you teaching doctrine concerning heaven and the resurrected life, we pray that we would glean from that. So, Lord, teach us, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, guys, we are, um, you know, heading toward, or at least in our text, in Mark's gospel, we are heading toward... The cross. Jesus was heading toward the cross. And so these events that are taking place are all leading up to the cross. Jesus, he makes his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. As we saw two weeks ago, uh, a number of things happened. He went in, he cleansed the temple. Uh, But there was also the cursing of the fig tree. He goes up to the fig tree. It wasn't fig season. Though because of the green leaves on the fig tree, he expected it to have those little edible uh, buds that would grow on the fig trees. And he curses a fig tree. And I suggested to you that it wasn't because he was having a bad day. It was speaking of something prophetic. Prophetically, the fig tree representing Israel. Israel, with all of your blessings. I want you to think of this, guys. Because too often as Christians, we think that everything revolves around us. That everything was given to us. That, you know, the law and the prophets, there are law and the prophets. No, 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 no. They were given to Israel. And... Israel was blessed. He was blessed by the law. He was blessed by the prophets. He was, they were blessed by Moses, you know, delivering. They were blessed by God raising up men like Joshua and Daniel and, you know, the prophets Jeremiah and Isaiah and Ezekiel and so many. And they were preparing the people for what was coming. What was coming? Messiah was coming. I mean, everything points to Messiah. And then Messiah comes. That's what we see in the New Testament, we look at the gospel accounts. Messiah's on, on sight. He's there among them. And yet they don't recognize him. They don't see him for who he is. And so we pick up our text in verse 13 of chapter 12. And it says, Then they sent to him some of the Pharisees and Herodians, note, to catch him in his words. And when they had come, they said to him, Teacher, We know that you are true and care about no one. That sounds so weird, doesn't it? For you do not regard the person of men, but teach the way of God in truth. Now, 
Let me just stop there for a moment. If they truly believe, now they're flattering Jesus, as if that was really going to work on Jesus. Does that ever work on you when people try to butter you up, flatter you before they drop the hammer, you know, with some criticism? <laughs> Usually that's how it works. But they're, they're saying these things, but they're, they're, they don't mean it, because if they really believe that he teach, he teaches the way of God in truth, they surely wouldn't have been coming to him trying to entrap him in his words. So here it is. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Shall we pay or shall we not pay? But he, knowing their hypocrisy, said to them, why do you test me? Bring me a denarius that I may see it. So they brought it. And he said to them, whose image and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. Then Jesus answered and said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And their response, and they marveled at him. You know, I don't know where the whole thing came from. I don't really understand, uh, you know, the whole philosophy behind it, but the drop the mic thing, you know, where you say something, you make a statement, you drop the mic, I guess you're saying, I'm done. I've said all there is to say. And if there was a drop the mic (laughs) moment for Jesus, it would be at this particular time when Jesus had these, these different groups coming to him so that they might entrap him. Why are they coming? Because they're offended. I'm offended. We know that you spoke that parable the parable of the wicked vine dressers. We know that you spoke that parable against us. We're offended. And so we want to do everything we can to turn the attitude, the opinion of the people against you. And so as we'll see in our text, and we've already seen three separate groups, or the last one was an individual, but the first group was the Pharisees and the Herodians. So the Pharisees were religious, obviously. The Pharisees were the religious interpreters of the law and the, and the traditions of the fathers. And I will stress the traditions of the fathers because they really leaned hard on that. And then the Herodians, they were not religious. They were political. So they were political supporters of Herod the Great's dynasty. So think of that. I mean, you might not know a lot about the historical setting at the time of Christ, but, but uh, let me tell you, the majority of the people did not like having Herod the Great reign over them. Herod the Great was the king of Israel, though he was not a Jew. Think of that. He was an Edomite. And if you're familiar with the Old Testament, you know that the Edomites, I mean, there was this family link But there were a lot of issues between Israel and Edom. And so they grudgingly had this king ruling over them. And not only did they have King Herod, who is not a Jew, they had Rome. They had Rome lording over them. And so the issue, you know, they said, well, let's 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 try to catch him here. Maybe maybe he'll slip up. We'll ask him a question. It's foolproof. You know, there's some people, they work overtime thinking that they're going to find some way to discredit God. Fools. 
I mean, really, I, I'm, not mean, I'm not trying to be mean. I'm just, it's just foolish. I'm going, to describe, I'm going to prove God wrong by some statement or some, you know, scenario that I come up with. And so they come and they ask a question, a question that they probably thought, you know, this is foolproof. Because we will, we, we will if he says, no, don't pay taxes, then the wrath of Rome will come down upon him. Now, they didn't know, but the wrath of Rome was coming down on him anyway in just a few days. But they didn't know that, of course. Or if he said yes, then the people would say, oh, boy, we thought Jesus was on our side. We thought Jesus was a Messiah. But surely the Messiah would never tell us to submit to Rome. And so they thought that they had him. And, of course, his response is classic. I, I, I love our Lord's response here because he just simply, first of all, he asked for a coin, which I think is significant because apparently he didn't have a money bag with, you know, uh, coins in his pocket. So he asked for a coin. They show him the coin. And he simply says, look at whose image is that on the coin? Whose inscription is that on the coin? It's Caesar's. He says, it's Caesar's coin. Give Caesar his coin. But without saying it in great detail, he says, whose image is on you? Now, guys, this is true of all of humanity. Animals were not created in God's image. Humanity was created in God's image. Whose image is on you? God's. Then give to God what belongs to God. The coin belongs to Caesar. Give him the coin. But you belong to God, so give him your life. You know, guys, there are, there are many distractions in life. I uh, was sharing with the first service that probably within the first three weeks of walking with Jesus, you know, I, many of you know I was raised Roman Catholic, went to parochial school. Uh, I did what a lot of teenagers did at that time in the 70s became very disillusioned with what we considered organized religion because it just seemed powerless. And many of us uh, looked to Eastern mysticism. And so I, you know, dabbled in uh, different forms of meditation and, uh, you know, the Krishnas and Maharishi Yogi and, you know, the transcendental meditation thing and all of that type of stuff. And I just kind of had a fascination with that. I thought it was interesting as a young man that when I was in those settings, the young people were either coming from the Catholic Church or they were Jewish. I thought that was interesting. But anyway, I didn't come to faith in Christ until Tracy and I were married for a year. I was 20 years old. And uh, gave my life to the Lord. And, and I had so many people share the gospel with me. And I said the, what was, you know, what's coined the sinner's prayer. I said that prayer so many times since I was a kid. Um, you know, I, to the horror of parents, um, I started hitchhiking when I was 12 years old. And I remember the first time someone shared the gospel with me, I was with my friend Russ, we lived in Poway, down in San Diego, and we lived kind of on the edge of town. And so we hitchhiked 
over to Old Town Poway so that we could go to this music store because we wanted to look at some instruments. And, um, and I remember, um, well, I remember my mom happened to be driving by as I had my little 12-year-old <laughs> thumb out and she threatened to take both of our thumbs off. But, but anyway, but on the way there, I was picked up by, we were picked up by these two guys. I mean, you talk about dodgy. It was in an old station wagon and the seats were down, so you kind of sat in the back. We weren't actually sitting in a seat. And they kind of pulled over, and yet they weren't necessarily, I mean, they weren't forcing us, but they had something to say to us. And we, we just kept thinking, man, we've got some pervs, you know. And they shared the gospel with us. And so we just said, oh, yeah, you know, well, would you like to say the prayer? Well, you know, you're a 12-year-old, you're in some stranger's vehicle. And you say, yeah, sure, I'll, whatever, to get out, <laughs> I'll do that. And, and that's when it began, and it happened over and over and over again. But it wasn't until I surrendered my life to the Lord. And when I did, I'll tell you, I knew that it was real because there was a change in my life. It was, it was supernatural. I didn't know what to expect because I had never read the Bible. So it wasn't like I was saying, oh, I need to have an experience like Paul or someone else. You know, I, I had no reference point. I just knew that it was real. And so Tracy and I started attending a little Bible church right outside of the community that we lived in. And we started attending that church because some friends of ours, some people that we met in the three weeks that we lived there in Grass Valley. Uh, In fact, I was working for uh, Dave. I was a carpenter and he was building a sub uh, or a uh, spec house. And so we were together, and I'm sure he had an influence upon me. But started going to this little church, and within the first three weeks, I had three different groups of people from that little church approach me. The first group was the modern-day Herodians. That was the John Birch Society, and they were telling me that I shouldn't pay taxes. And so they wanted me to come to their house, and they wanted me to get on the bandwagon with them, you know, to become a John Bircher, you know, and you shouldn't pay taxes, and taxes are unconstitutional, and so on and so forth. The next group was the modern-day, I'll say, Sadducees. The Sadducees were the liberals, and that was a group of Amway salespeople. And their plea was, uh, or their kind of gimmick was, listen, Danny, you need, to, you need to make money, and this is a great way to make money. You want to sh- support missions, don't you? And I was like, yeah, I guess. I, want to, I don't know what I want to do, you know. But uh, I know that I, I don't want to become a John Bircher, and I, I don't want to become an Amway person. And then the third group that came up to me, I would see them as kind of the modern-day Pharisees. They came up, and their mission was to get me to cut my hair because my hair was too long. (laughs) You say, why do you even share such a thing? That was so long ago. I share such a thing because all of those three groups came out of that same little church, 
And there are so many distractions. If we're not careful, all I wanted to do, you know what? I didn't care about how long my hair was. I didn't care about taxes. I really didn't, you know. I'm thinking I wasn't making hardly any money anyway, you know. And and I surely didn't care about Amway and and getting involved in that. I just simply wanted to walk with Jesus. And yet, almost immediately, there were these distractions. And we need to be careful, guys. Because maybe you've been walking with the Lord for a long, long time. But I'll tell you, there's distractions out there. And people could present things in such a way, and you could get caught up, and your whole focus is politics, you know, and that's the answer, and that's the, you know, that will be the remedy for our, our nation that seems to be sinking, you know. I'm telling you, if you ever move from that main thing, and the main thing is the Lord. If you ever move from the Lord as central in your life, you're on the wrong track. You are. And so you need to be wise. You need to realize, you know, what this might be a good thing and this might be a good cause, but oh Lord, help me not to get caught up in something that's going to distract me from you. Well, next up to bat, the Sadducees. Then some Sadducees who say there is no resurrection. By the way, the Sadducees were the liberals. So I like to refer to the Sadducees as the religious non-believers. You know, we have religious non-believers all around us. We have many churches that are religious non-believers. The Sadducees, they didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in miracles. They didn't believe in uh, you know, life after death. They didn't believe in a lot of stuff. But they were religious leaders. And so they come and they, they have a question. And, and Mark tells us right here in the text that they say that there is no resurrection. So they came to him and they asked him saying, Teacher, Moses wrote to us that if a man's brother dies and leaves his wife behind and leaves no children, his brother should take his wife and raise up offspring for his brothers. Do you know what this is referring to? You know, modern day we look at this and go, oh, gross, that's weird. That's weird. Listen, it wasn't weird. We, we find it in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 25, and there for the longevity and the, you know, to make sure that no family line died off, it was the responsibility of a surviving brother. If his brother was to die, he dies, he's married, he's, he dies, and there's no male offspring. It's very clear that it's a male offspring because a male offspring would carry the name. So he dies, there's no offspring. His line, if you will, will die out. It will be gone. It will cease to exist in Israel. And so the brother's responsibility is to take his brother's wife and uh, to be with her sexually so that she might bear a son. And once he does that, his responsibility is fulfilled, and he's done, and then he can raise up children unto himself. Now, it's interesting, when you look at the Deuteronomy text, that if a man said, I will not do that, I don't want to be my, you know, like kinsman redeemer type of thing. Remember the book of Ruth and Boaz, remember that? The same picture there. If he says, uh, I don't want to take on this responsibility, 
Then the elders would come to the man. They would try to persuade the man to do the right thing. If he refused to do the right thing, they would take his sandal off. They would spit in his face. And he would forever have the title, the one whose sandal was removed. And so it was a stigma, you know. There he is, the one who had his sandal removed. And everyone knew what that meant. He wouldn't, he wouldn't for his brother's sake, raise up an heir. So that's... The law, that was for the Jews, that doesn't apply to Christians. It's not our responsibility to do that, but that was for Israel. So, so here's, here's the, the question that they ask. Verse 20. Now there were seven brothers, and the first took a wife and died, and he left no offspring. And the second took her, and he died, nor did he leave any offspring. And the third likewise. So the seven had her and left No offspring. Last of all, the woman died also. Therefore, in the resurrection, you can almost picture them, you know, we got them. (laughs) We really came up with a good one here, you know. In the resurrection, when when they rise, whose wife will she be? For all seven had her as wife. Do you see the point? In essence, they're saying, Jesus... You talk about the resurrection, the resurrected life, how absurd. As they're asking the question to Jesus, no doubt they're looking around. They're probably projecting their voice so those standing by could hear the question, knowing that some would say, good point. Our human minds are so silly. Good point. Boy, I never thought of that one. You know, and yet Jesus answers it with another Drop my statement. I mean, just, just to the point. Look what he says in verse 24. Jesus answered and said to them, Are you not therefore mistaken? And you'll note next to that word mistaken, there's a note. And the word can be rendered deceived. Are you not deceived? Because you do not know the scriptures, nor the power of God. Guys, I say it all the time. Be people of the word. Read the word. Study the word. Know the word. Why? So that you might know the scriptures. And by knowing the scriptures, you might know the power of God. You see what I'm saying? Then human reasoning, the the different straw men that we set up, you know, to make a point, all of a sudden, they are seen for what they are. Clothes stuffed with straw. No substance. Now look what Jesus says. For when they rise... From the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Now, we're going to stop there for a moment because this is doctrine. And this is important because there's a lot of professing Christians that get this wrong. How many times have you heard people say, when we die, or someone dies, and they say something like, they're an angel now. They probably got their wings. Have you heard people say that? The Bible does not teach that that dead believers become angels. It does not teach that at all. Angels are a created creature. They're created beings, specifically created to be angels. Angels are not just dead people that have died over the years and they get their wings, you know, and this isn't, uh, 
what was that Christmas thing that they played to death during every year, you know, A Wonderful Life. Yeah, is it, you know, it's not, it's not like that, you know. Listen, look at the reference, look at the context. Context is important. When they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage. That's the context. They will be like angels. In what way? Angels neither marry nor are given in marriage. Are you following this? This is important. This is doctrine. We don't become angels. The Bible says that we receive new bodies. It doesn't say anything about wings or anything like that. Another misnomer, and that's why you need to come out on Wednesday night, because there's this, you know, that somehow we, you know, we're sitting throughout all eternity playing a harp. That's boring. That is so boring. I read that in the Revelation. Read the context of it. Read the context of what you're, you're reading there about those playing harps. It's not us. Okay? So, in heaven, it's going to be different than it is on earth. There's not going to be marriage in heaven, in the resurrection. There's not going to be marriage. Now, that could bum us out. We say, well, I, I love my wife. I love my husband, you know, and I want to be married to them throughout all eternity, you know. And, and, but that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that there will be a different order, a different structure altogether. Now, you know, I love my wife. We've been married 44 years, and, you know, we've been together since we were young. And um, now we're old, and our love for each other deepens every year. And, um, but I'll tell you, when we're in heaven, we're not going to be lacking anything because our relationship with one another is going to be absolutely perfect. Right now, our relationship with one another is not perfect. There's a lot of things that, you know, can rub each other the wrong way and stuff. But in heaven, we will be perfect. And we will be perfect, united with everyone else in heaven. It will be perfection. Guys, we need to be careful of this because there are many professing Christians that think that heaven is going to be all of your favorite things here on earth in heaven for eternity. Where do we get that? In fact, it doesn't. This is why we must know the scriptures and the power of God. We almost see heaven as, you know, its reward. What am I being rewarded for? Now, don't get me wrong. In heaven, we will receive rewards. Christians will receive rewards. Crowns, it talks about. But, but is heaven a reward? A reward for what? Well, for believing in Jesus. Really? It's a reward? How about a blessing? How about a gift? Eternal life with the Lord of lords and the King of kings throughout all eternity. I don't deserve it. It's not a reward. I mean, if I do something, if I do some feat, if I, you know, and, and I get a reward for it, then in one sense, I, I, I got to work for that. But salvation, I haven't worked for that at all. I can't work for it. A right standing with God, I can't work for that. I can't earn that in any way. But there are those, you know, they kind of think, well, you know, if my, if my favorite pet and my favorite hobby is not in heaven, heaven just won't be heaven. 
If you think that way, you know not the scriptures nor the power of God. Guys, this is part of our fallen human nature, even as Christians. This is what the flesh does. Me, me, me. I, I, I. It's all about me. Heaven should be about me. I should have my favorite foods, my favorite hobbies, my favorite pets. But I'll tell you, when you read the scriptures, and this is why I encourage you to read the book of Revelation, for example. Do you know in the book of Revelation, it's full of songs? I forget how many. I think it's in the 20s. 20 different songs that are sung by various creatures or people in heaven. But when you read the book of Revelation, do you know what you see? It's not about us at all. It's about him, him, him. The focus is upon him. There's no mention of, of John looking around and saying, yeah, I saw some old friends, and oh, I saw myself up there on the throne, and oh boy, it's going to be. No, 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 it's him, him, him. I saw him who sits upon the throne. I can't even describe him because it's so marvelous. But I'll tell you, the throne was like, there was like a rainbow around the throne. But it wasn't like a rainbow that you see on earth. It was an emerald rainbow. And there was a sea of glass and the, 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 the gates of pearl, like one pearl. And in describing these things in ways that we would maybe kind of understand, but still unable to really do justice to what he was saying. It's about him. So we need to be careful that, you know, if, if we think that heaven is, is this type of thing. I was talking to a brother after service, a relative just died, and he says, yeah, uh, we just got together with some folks and someone made that comment about, well, you know, now your, your dad is an angel. And he says, please do not demote my father. What does the Bible say, you know, about humanity versus angels? Nehemiah and I were just talking about this on Wednesday night as he was preparing for the high school teaching. Do you know that the angels look at the redemption of humanity with wonderment? It's like, wow. They're not saying, oh, no big thing. They're looking at it. And we're, as we're talking about it, I said, they probably look and say, I can't, God is so gracious that he would save people like that. Look at these people. And they don't even give them the time of day most of the time. And they make a profession of faith and then they kind of go on their way living their lives. And God is so gracious. God is so kind, you know. Well, then Jesus comes back with scripture. Guys, listen, it's not what I feel. It's what does the word say? And we see Jesus, the Lord of Lords, God in the flesh, going back to scripture. This isn't the first time he, he did it throughout his incarnation. He says, but concerning the dead that they rise, have you not read in the book of Moses in the burning bush passage? How God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead. Or, let's see. He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. You are therefore mistaken or deceived. Guys, remember that all of these that were mentioned, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they were all dead. When Moses stood there before the burning bush and, and, and God said, I am the God of. So do you catch that? This is doctrine. This is something you should be gleaning from us. Christians, you could say, oh, I understand. 
So if someone says, why do you believe in the resurrection? Well, because the Bible teaches it. Well, give me, give me proof that there's resurrection. Well, the burning bush. I mean, here you have it right there. That's doctrine. So you can come back to scripture. This is how we should train ourselves. Because too often we say, I feel, I believe. And we don't back it up with scripture. And people just look at us like, that's your opinion. That's your opinion. Because they do that anyway, don't they? You share the word with somebody, a non-believer, what do they say? That's your interpretation. That's your opinion. And you want to say, read it. You, you, you read English? Well, this is an English Bible. Read the English. You, you understand how to read English. I just read it. You read it. There's no interpretation. I'm just simply telling you what it says here. I'm not saying, well, actually, what that means is there might be places where we need clarity, but we surely don't need clarity here. So the next step to bat a scribe. Verse 28, then one of the scribes came and having heard them reasoning together, perceived that he, that is Jesus, answered them well, asked him, which is the first or the greatest commandment of all? So he has a, a legal question. And Jesus answered him, the first or the greatest commandment is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the first commandment. So that's Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. And then he goes on, he says, listen, I'll throw in the second one as a freebie. (laughs) And the second is like it, is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than So the scribe, you know, he says, uh, he's he's impressed. So the scribe said to him, well said, teacher. You have spoken the truth, for there is one God, and there is no other but he. And to love him with all your heart, and it goes on understanding and so on, and to love your neighbor as oneself is more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Then, now when Jesus saw that he answered wisely. He said to him, look what he said. You're not far from the kingdom of God. Thank you. (laughs) Was this a compliment or was this an observation? Now it goes on to say, but after that, no one dared question him. So they kind of come group after group and they go away looking foolish and, you know, thinking, you're not far from the kingdom of God. You know, guys, not far from is not there yet. We could, we could be students of the scripture, though I don't know why you would want to be a student of the scripture if you didn't believe the scripture, but there are those. I mean, we've, we've had, in the history of the church, we've had higher criticism. These scholars that would study scripture, in essence, to do what the, the, the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the Herodians did, you know, they just attacked the word and tried to dismantle the word and It's interesting, we don't have the higher critics, higher criticism any longer. Now we just have atheists. 
or proclaiming to be atheist. I don't think atheists really exist. When push comes to shove, it's interesting how people are willing to vacillate on the existence of God depending upon their experience. You're not far from. Guys, things are wrapping up. Time is running out. You say, oh, that's a scare tactic. No, it's not a scare tactic. You, you would say amen if you're paying attention to what's happening to the world. I mean, politically, globally, the things that the Lord and the prophets told us to watch for, they're, they're in spades all around us right now. I mentioned last week that Bible prophecy has a shelf life. Listen, if you're going to have uh, different nations coming in to Israel to attack Israel, and you're going to have Saudi Arabia, who had never been a friend of Israel, though now they are a friend of Israel. In fact, in Saudi Arabia, they just recently had a Holocaust Remembrance Day where they had Jews praying Hebrew prayers and speakers coming. They never would have had that. This is Bible prophecy being fulfilled because the Bible says that certain nations, Russia, Persia, which is Iran, right? It was Persia up to 50 years ago. It's called Iran now. You guys know this, don't you? So, uh, Turkey, (laughs) Sudan, these nations that are mentioned in that Ezekiel text, how they're going to come, they're going to come down apparently from the Golan Heights. We hope it doesn't happen while the guys are there. But, uh, They're going to come from the Golan Heights and they're going to attack Israel. And Saudi Arabia is going to protest and say, have you come to plunder? Now they would protest because they know if Israel gets hit, they're next. So that would be kind of a very practical. But also, we never thought we would live in a time where Saudi Arabia would link arms with Israel. This is where Bible prophecy has a shelf life. Right now, all the nations mentioned happen to be in Syria. They've been in Syria for quite some time. But how long will they be in Syria? Bible prophecy has a shelf life. Well, there's a lot that I could say about that. But here's the thing. You might not be far from. You might say, well, I have have Christian parents. I I have a Christian spouse. I have Christian children, whatever, you know, I'm close. I listen to my kids when they tell me about Jesus, you know, you're close, you're close, you're not far from, but you haven't entered in. How do you enter in? You need to personally admit that you're a sinner. You need to personally acknowledge I am a sinner and my sins have separated me from God. And you need to stop thinking with your own little noggin because see, our own little noggin works like this. God is God. He knows that man is but dust. He doesn't expect much from me. I can live my life any way I choose. He's not going to hold me accountable for how I live my life. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. That's the human mind. And yet the scripture says, not so, not so. He gives opportunity after opportunity after opportunity. We might protest, you know, those of us that have placed our faith in Christ say, Lord, what's taking so long? And the answer would be, I don't want any to perish, but all to come to repentance. He's long-suffering. 
And there are some, maybe they're not physically here in the building, but maybe they're listening on the live stream. You're not far from, but you need to, you need to step over. You need to admit that you're a sinner. You need to confess to Christ. You need to place your faith in the Lord. And I'm telling you that when you do that, your life changes. Your life does not remain the same. Your life will only remain the same if you do nothing. And this is where modern-day Christianity has failed. It's almost as if modern-day Christianity wants to seal the deal with the sinner's prayer that cannot be found in the Bible. Rather than just simply teaching what the Scriptures teach. And this is why, for me, you know, I pass through this little church. There's not many of you that come here. And you say, but yeah, you're so hard on us, you know. You, you're always, you know, telling us. You're always, you know, kind of pushing the buttons with us. And, and why do I do that? Because I don't want anyone to come to this church and say, you know, I'm, I'm good. I'm good. Everything's fine. I go to church after all. What do you want? Well, first of all, I don't want anything. But the Lord wants your life. Render to God what is God's. You know what's interesting, going back to that, and I'm I'm out of time, and I'm not going to be able to finish my text, but it's interesting because Israel never would have had to render to Caesar anything if they would have simply rendered to God what was due him. And the same is true today. Why are we living in this world? The bondage. I'll tell you, last night, I was put my phone on and I was looking at kind of the headlines on my Bing, you know. I was shocked, uh, not by the headlines, uh, I was shocked that, that one particular theme showed up three times on that particular feed. And it was attempted child abduction. And I thought, wow, three times. First one was a little girl, a little five-year-old. She went out to take the trash out. Some creep grabs hold of her. She screams. Teach your children to scream. She screamed, and he let go of her, and she was able to escape. Another one was a man, some old fart. Can I say that in church? I, I think I could say that in church. Some old guy, and he attempted to buy a child for $200,000. So disgusting. So what's happening to our world? Well, we really shouldn't be surprised when you have people that are, you know, their, their, their diet is pornography and everything. So oh, I'd never go there. I'd never go there. Man, don't say never. You feed on the garbage of the world. There's no telling where you might end up. But I'll tell you, there's a remedy, and the remedy is Christ. Place your faith in Christ. Live for Christ. Christ is coming again. And all of the things that you scoff at now, which by scoffing, you're just simply fulfilling Bible prophecy. But all the things you scoff at now will become a reality. 
Do you know that the Bible describes a time during the tribulation, as hellish as the tribulation will be, he describes a time that will last for five months where people will long for death and will not be able to die. I don't know what that will look like, but I'll tell you, my, my imagination runs wild with that. People trying to kill themselves, the different means, and nothing happens. They can't die. You say, you're trying to scare us. I'm not trying to scare you. I'm just simply trying to stimulate our thinking so that we think about these things. Because there are some people, they believe these things in their head. In fact, some people, you could sit down with them, and they could, they could quote scripture, and they could say, yes, and, and then this is going to happen in the book of Revelation, and that's going to happen in the book of Revelation, and they know all the facts, but they haven't, they haven't stepped over the line. They haven't placed their faith in Christ. They haven't admitted that they're sinners. They would say, I'm a, I know I'm a sinner. Well, that's not admitting. That's not confessing. You confess with your mouth. You believe in your heart. You see, the believing in the heart is what brings the change. So time's running out. I hope that you've all placed your faith in Christ. You guys come up. Where's Nehemiah? <laughs> Boy. There he is. Okay. Would you stand with me, please? And would you please, just if, if you're interested, I, I obviously wanted to go further. Jesus asked a question. He, he doesn't ask a question to embarrass people. He asks a question to stimulate people. And the question that he asked was, how is it that David calls, calls his son Lord? And we, we think, well, you know, what's a big deal with that? Because in that culture, a father would never, never, ever, ever call his son or his descendant Lord, ever. The father is always on top of the heap. It doesn't matter if you're the father of the king. And Jesus makes it clear that not only is he the branch of David, he is the fruit of David. Not only is he... The son of David, he is the Lord of David, is another way of putting that. And then he goes on and he talks about the scribes. And I think that if you look at what Jesus had to say about the scribes, it would be beneficial because we live in a day and age where there are many ministers who are like the scribes, you know. Serve me. Bless me. The ones who go in and devour widows' homes. You know, let me help you, sister, with your finances. Sad to see your husband die, but we'll take care of you. I'll take care of you. I can help you with that as a ripping off people. And we have that today. So, Lord, help us to be a people who love your word. Help us to be a people who are sharing the gospel with our loved ones, Lord. We pray for our loved ones who have not placed their faith in you. I remember, Lord, as an unbeliever, every time I would hear the gospel, I would fold my hands and I would, you know, I would be indifferent toward it. And I would think to myself, these people are idiots to think such things. They're brainwashed. And the guy in the pulpit is the biggest idiot of all. And yet, Lord, when I was saved, I was saved. And my life was changed. And I thank you for that, Lord. And I know that some people, they won't understand it until they're born again, born of your spirit. So we pray, Father, that you would soften the hardened hearts, the indifferent 
hearts and that you'd bring people to yourself. We know you don't want any to perish, and so thank you for your long-suffering. But you also tell us to give warning, to beware, to watch. And we're doing that, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.